Welcome to Kopi Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I am Thaymur Beg, Chief Economist, your host. Welcome to our 52nd episode. Today, we have the pleasure of having with us an astute observer of geopolitics. Kishor Mahobani is currently Distinguished Fellow at the Asia Research Institute at National University of Singapore. In his long and accomplished career, Professor Mahobani was with the Singapore Foreign Service for 33 years. Twice, he was Singapore's ambassador to the UN. He was also permanent secretary at the Foreign Ministry from 1993 to 1998. Professor Mahobani joined academia in 2004 when he was appointed the founding dean of the Lee Kuan School of Public Policy. Kishore Mahobani is a prolific author of articles in leading newspapers and magazines, as well as a number of books, including Can Asians Think? Can Singapore Survive? And most recently, which we will talk a lot about, Has China Won? Professor Mahobani, welcome to Kopi Time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us. I want to begin with a, an op-ed that you wrote at the Financial Times just a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And the title was, Biden Should Summon the Courage to Reverse Course on China. Mm-hmm. So let's start with the U.S. point of view. Why is it in the interest of the U.S. to mm-hmm. reduce the temperature between the two superpowers? Well, you know, I want to emphasize that I want Biden to succeed. My nightmare is that in 2024, we will see the return of Donald Trump. And I'm not even exaggerating, because at the end of the day, he did get 74, 75 million votes. And if Biden gets it wrong, the world is in trouble. So our interests, including in Singapore and in Southeast Asia, is to help Biden succeed. By carrying on with Trump's policies on China, when they clearly have failed in every sense of the term. And, you know, as I explained in my book, As China Won, the fundamental problem about the contest that Donald Trump launched against China is that he launched this contest without a strategy. And Henry Kissinger told me that at a one-on-one lunch that I had with him in New York. And what happens when you don't have a strategy? You fail. And so the obvious question to ask is, have Trump's policies weakened China, strengthened the U.S., brought the friends of the U.S. to support U.S. on China? The answer to all three questions is no. So obviously, it is not in the interest of the Biden administration to carry on in an automatic fashion with Trump's policies on China. Instead, it would be wiser for him to announce, hey, Trump failed on China, I'll do a better job. Right. And you are mincing no words. So what would you have done differently in the first two months of the Biden administration? I I would say the first thing that uh, Biden could have done, bearing in mind the political environment in the United States, which has become strongly anti-China, is to say, hey, guys, we got lots of important things to do. On China, let's press the pause button. Let's first figure out What has Trump done? Has he weakened China? Has he strengthened America? And then after we assess his policies, we then decide, okay, which ones do we carry on? And as part of the pause button, especially in the first few weeks, the first thing he should have done was to lift all the trade tariffs and sanctions on China. Because I can tell you, just a few days ago, I was participating in the Harvard Asia Conference with some Harvard professors and other China watchers in the U.S., And they all said when the Biden administration announces that we are not going to 
remove the sanctions and tariffs because we want to retain them as leverage against China. You know what this Harvard professor said? That's like, by, that's like threatening China by saying, if you don't listen to me, I'll shoot myself in the foot again. <laughs> so clearly these sanctions and tariffs have not hurt China. In fact, have not helped the American workers, have not helped the American consumers. So frankly, reverse costs on them because, because that will be in the interests of the American people. Last year, you attended a conference uh, organized by DBS where you pointed out that your view was that you, the Chinese themselves have not done themselves any favor in terms of influencing people and winning friends. And at that time, this was summer of last year, you felt that China had no friends left in Washington, D.C. Mm. Does that remain the case? Uh, that, that certainly remains the case. And... Uh, and why that has happened, of course, is a very complex story. In fact, I hold devote a whole chapter in my book, uh, Has China Won, to the strategic mistake that uh, China has made in this U.S.-China contest. And of course, it was completely unnecessary for China to have alienated the American business community. And as you know, many American companies make a lot of money from China. I mean, Boeing, I think Boeing's single biggest customer probably is China. Uh, General Motors makes more money from uh, China than it does from the United States of America. And uh, Apple, absolutely, <laughs> the world's largest company. Just imagine if tomorrow there's a complete shutdown of trade between US and China. How much do you think this $2 trillion Apple company will be worth? Right? So Apple is benefiting a lot too. But what is amazing is that none of these companies spoke out when Trump launched his trade war against China. And that was a clear sign that China had failed and China had alienated the American business community. Now, disastrous start to the first two months of the administration vis-a-vis China notwithstanding. Mm. We did have John Kerry engage the Chinese, his Biden's climate czar, mm. on issues of climate change. And it looks like that is one area where there will be substantial room for collaboration. Mm-hmm. So it's not all confrontation. Yes, uh, certainly, uh, again, to be fair to the Biden administration, they are trying to, to do both things at the same time. But at some point in time, there has to be a certain degree of intellectual and political coherence in what you are doing. And frankly, you know, I was a diplomat for 33 years. If you really want countries to cooperate on some things, for a start, stop insulting them. And so, for example, when Mike Pompeo, almost on the last day of the Trump administration, declares that there was a genocide in Xinjiang, now that's a complete untruth. It has not been proven that hundreds and thousands of people have been killed in Xinjiang. It's completely untrue. And Jeff Sachs of Columbia University just came out with an article that documented why this is false. Unfortunately, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, repeated that there was a genocide in Xinjiang. And that's factually incorrect. So I think when it comes to dealing with, with, with China, I can understand the concerns the United States has about China. These are real, legitimate concerns. It is true that many American interests will be hurt and damaged as China becomes stronger. So the concerns are real. They are legitimate. But when you deal with them, the first thing you've got to figure out is 
what is my strategy? What is my, and if you want to work out a strategy, what are my goals in dealing with China? And so when the Biden administration didn't press the pause button, didn't say, okay, let's start afresh with a new approach to China. And as, as part of the fresh approach, as you know, especially when dealing with Asian countries, public insults never help. In fact, the whole definition of a diplomat is someone who can tell you to go to hell in such a way that you feel you're going to enjoy the journey. <laughs> That's what diplomacy is all about, okay? And I know that America has got good diplomats. So why doesn't America go back to the, the, the diplomacy textbook and try to engage China in a respectful dialogue, pointing out where the differences are, where the concerns are, and then pointing out the areas where you can collaborate? But for to do that, you need to have a U-turn, a reversal from the policies of the Trump administration, because you just insult China today, insult China tomorrow, and we carry on. That's not how you conduct international relations. I want to spend most of this podcast talking about Asia, but one non-Asia question for you, because you are talking mm -hmm. about the, this politics of insult, which doesn't really you know, pay mm -hmm. off. U.S. has been very aggressive against Russia the last mm -hmm. month or so, including the President of the United States calling Vladimir Putin a killer, which mm -hmm. I don't think the Russians appreciated much. And we're mm -hmm. seeing in the last few days significant escalation in the relationship between mm -hmm. the two countries. Is that a mistake as well? Well, again, the, 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 the mistake is a similar one. What is the United States' strategy for dealing with Russia? And as you know, one of the most, um, how do you say, controversial points I make in my book is that Russia, in the long run, will not be an ally of China. Russia, in the long run, will become an ally of the West. And by the way, other American strategic thinkers like John Mearsheimer and others have said, why are we pushing Russia into the camps of China? And the reason why the West is pushing Russia into the camps of China is because the West doesn't have a strategy for dealing with Russia. And, and as you know, in my previous books, I've documented that it was a huge mistake to try to expand NATO into what used to be the geopolitical space of the former Soviet Union. And of course, the Russians would get upset. And sadly, you know, Gorbachev tried very hard to create a new rapprochement between uh, Russia and the West, and he was slapped uh, by the West. NATO was expanded unnecessarily, and the end result is that the West has succeeded in alienating Russia, and as a consequence of that, Russia is now cooperating with China because they both feel that they're being slapped around. And I suppose implicit in your argument is that if you, as a superpower, starts pushing another emerging or former power around, instead of energizing your allies in those societies, you're actually energizing the anti-Western sentiments. Mm. Yes, I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I want to emphasize again that we want the United States to remain in East Asia. We want the United States to play a constructive role in East Asia. And there is a, there are tremendous reservoirs of goodwill towards uh, America. America can exploit these reservoirs of goodwill. But to exploit these reservoirs of goodwill, don't force countries in this region to say, hey, are you on China's side or on the side of the uh, United States? Because frankly, for the countries in this region, who's today their primary trading partner, right? Now, in the year 2000, 21 years ago, 
America's GNP was eight times the size of China's. Today, it's only 1.5 times at the most. In the year 2000, America's trade with Southeast Asia was three times larger than China's trade with Southeast Asia. Today, China's trade with Southeast Asia is much larger than America's trade with Southeast Asia. So how can you ask these countries to give up their, their, their real hardcore interests and sacrifice their relations with China for what? So you, that's why you need to have a much more intelligent, thoughtful strategy. And unfortunately, as you know, because the United States won the Cold War against Soviet Union so handsomely, they sort of took it for granted. Hey, if people have to choose between the United States and Soviet Union, they chose United States. And so they say, okay, today if countries have to choose between the United States and China, they will automatically choose the United States. And of course, many countries want to maintain good relations with the United States. But hang on a second, they have real interests with vis-a-vis -vis China. And China, as I keep telling my American friends, America will be around in Asia for another 100 years. China will be around in Asia for another thousand years. <laughs> so you've got, you, you got to focus on the 1,000-year calendar in addition to focusing on the 100-year calendar. <laughs> okay, you mentioned that the U.S. retains tremendous reservoir of goodwill in the region. Why? Is it the military umbrella that the U.S. can offer, or is it the U.S. soft power, or is it the economic market size of the U.S.? Well, it's, a, it's again a, a complicated story, but I, what I do is I tell my American friends, if you look at the sentiment in Latin America or even Central America towards the United States, there's so much anti-American sentiment there. And one person who expressed this openly was the famous novelist Gabriel Garcia e. Marquez. And I actually was in the room hearing him say that, you know, okay? By contrast, in Southeast Asia, because the United States has been far away, it has not played an oppressive role in Southeast Asia. In fact, it's played a supportive role in Southeast Asia. When ASEAN was created in 1967, it was a pro-American creation. And uh, China actually denounced the creation of ASEAN as a neo-imperialist uh, uh, outfit, you know. So, you know, from that day onwards, and of course in the Cold War, it was the uh, ASEAN states that stood with the United States against the Soviet Union and actions in Vietnam and Indochina. And of course, paradoxically, of course, is that the reason why ASEAN did so well is that in the 1980s, there was a complete alignment of interests between US, China, and ASEAN. And this triangle strengthened ASEAN a great deal. So, you know, we have lots and lots of examples of how the United States has played a positive role in Southeast Asia. And of course, as you know, if you look at the educational qualifications of most Southeast Asian leaders, uh, very few of them have studied in Chinese universities. Many of them have studied in American universities. And certainly, if you want to look for a cabinet which has the hard, highest number of Harvard graduates, I think it's the Singapore cabinet. <laughs> So you can see how, how deep and pervasive the influence of American society has been in Singapore and in Southeast Asia. And we appreciate it. We like it. We welcome it. And I can tell you that, you know, American investment in Singapore in the 60s and 70s played a critical role in jumpstarting Singapore's economic growth. So Singapore, frankly, should send a big thank you note to the United States for what it has done for Singapore. 
What kind of thank you notes should Asian countries be sending to China? Has China already become the most important organizing principle in this region? And is it really so far the economic success of China? Or you think that China is actually making concerted efforts toward having a broader base influence in the region? You know, it would be very difficult uh, to give a definitive answer to your question because what we are seeing is a work in progress. Essentially, number one, I think even the Chinese themselves <laughs> are surprised how fast China has grown. Frankly, if you had asked Deng Xiaoping in 1980 when he launches for modernizations, right, that do you anticipate, Mr. Deng, that in 34 years' time, China's GNP, which then was 10% of the United States, would within 34 years become bigger? I mean, Deng Xiaoping would have said, no way. <laughs> we are struggling. We have poverty. We have problems. We will never get there. And of course, what the Chinese have accomplished, frankly, is a genuine miracle. I mean, in terms of the economic growth. I mean, getting, lifting 800 million people out of poverty, creating now the world's largest middle class, and I think the Chinese themselves actually are having difficulty ad ad accepting the fact that they're no longer, to use their own words, they say, oh, China is the largest developing country in the world. Come on. <laughs> when you have the second largest GNP in nominal terms, the largest GNP in PPP terms, you are for all practical purpose a major economic power. And I think the Chinese haven't adjusted to that and we should help them adjust to that that China got a lot of concessions in the year 2001 when it joined the World Trade Organization because it was then literally a developing country. It was automatically eligible for a lot of these concessions. But today, it's not right, not fair, for China to retain these concessions as the world's second largest economic power. And actually, I think it'd be wiser for China to unilaterally give up some of these concessions. And in fact, you know, Hank Paulson, who's a former U.S., Treasury Secretary, who's actually been quite friendly to China, has said, come on, guys, please start giving up some of your concessions. But all this can be done if you have a, a thoughtful, reflective, and respectful dialogue with China. But if you insult China, how do you think you can persuade China to change? That's the mistake. Right. Okay, so I want to stay on that issue of thank you note. Should Shouldn't China send a thank you note to the Clinton and Bush administration officials who helped that accession to the WTO? Because that was a pivotal moment for China. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, the negotiations were not easy. And uh, I don't know if you remember, there was a very famous trip by Premier Chu Rongji to Washington, D.C. to meet Bill Clinton. And he went there with a great hope and desire to secure China's admission to WTO. But then, to be honest with you, this is all documented. The Clinton administration became a bit greedy and raised the bar for China's entry into WTO. And Chu Rongji didn't have enough political power to, to meet the raised bar. In fact, Chu Rongji was embarrassed back home, by the way. You know? uh, so the negotiations were difficult. They were not easy. But at the end of the day, to be fair, the United States did agree uh, to China's admission to WTO. And, and, and that was a gift. But of course, the other gift, unfortunately, that the United States gave to China was that after 9-11 happened in Manhattan, and I was there when 9-11 happened, 
the United States got distracted in fighting wars in the Middle East, the war in Iraq was illegal, continued in Afghanistan. And every year that the United States spent fighting unnecessary wars was geopolitical gifts to China. So the, 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 the US, in a sense, gave some intended gifts by allowing China to join the WTO and some unintended gifts by fighting unnecessary wars in the Middle East. That's very well said. Um, I have heard you talk about, and I've seen this human uh, phraseology in several of your columns where you say that you know, these large superpowers should try to have a focus on the big picture, on the broader strategy, as opposed to minor irritants. Mm. Define minor irritants. Well, I mean, the, uh, I, I would give the example of uh, Hong Kong, right? And, you know, you can, you can argue that perhaps what China is doing may have violated the agreements that were reached between China and the United Kingdom. Okay, they were reached between China and the United Kingdom. Why does the United States have to stand up and say, hey, what is happening in Hong Kong is a beautiful sight to behold. This is what Nancy Pelosi said when the violent demonstrators tore, violently tore down the Legislative Assembly in Hong Kong. And sadly, she understood the meaning of the phrase, what a beautiful sight to behold, on January 6, 2021, when the demonstrators violated the U.S. Congress. And she was there. So it was a big mistake for the United States to encourage violence in Hong Kong. And, and of course, now you see what the same thing has happened. So in, in, on issues like uh, uh, Hong Kong, there is a tendency to do grandstanding rather than saying, what are my interests, right? And, you know, for example, you could argue that United States is depriving the human rights of Puerto Ricans by not giving them statehood. <laughs> okay? <laughs> you want China to make a big deal of it, right? The Chinese could if they wanted to, but they're not, they're not interested. They want to focus on the big things. And so the, this is all this focus on all these tangential issues reflects a lack of strategy. And, and I'm trying to... The big goal I have is to help the United States work out what would be the really good strategy. And for example, let me give a simple example. In dealing with China, what is more important for United States? Is it the interests of its people or is it the primacy of the United States in the global arena? You've got to be clear, you know. And right now, the United States this has not decided which is more important. And so the, as a consequence of it, number one, the people of America are suffering as a result of the United States spending $5 trillion fighting unnecessary wars. Also, the standard of living of the bottom 50% of the United States has remained stagnant for three decades, creating a sea of despair among the white working classes, which led to the election of Donald Trump. So frankly, if I was Joe Biden, I would focus on the interests of the American people to ensure that Donald Trump doesn't come back. And therefore, if that's your priority, then primacy is not so important. Why is primacy important? You know, at the end of the day, 
you can have a situation where China has a larger economy than the United States, but United States remains the most admired society in the world. So what's more important? So these are the, these are the trade-offs you've got to make in these big strategic decisions. And unfortunately, that has not yet happened in Washington, D.C. And the people, actually, the American friends of mine who like my book have told me that I, 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 they can see I'm trying to help the United States work out an intelligent, thoughtful, long-term strategy towards China. But this notion of primacy, I mean, surely Chinese policymakers are not immune from that. They also dream of a day when they're number one, right? Uh, certainly, I think in the, it, it's important to, when you step into people's mindsets, when you say it's important for China to be number one, you have to take, in a sense, a walk into the Chinese mind. And when you walk into the Chinese mind, what you find is that history is so alive in the Chinese mind. And instead of thinking about uh, what will happen when I become number one, the main question in Chinese minds is, how do I ensure I don't suffer another century of humiliation? And, you know, the reason why I did my MOOC course on U.S.-China relations was, again, you can watch it for free, uh, 24 videos. I want to try and enable Americans to step into Chinese minds and see how the Chinese view the things. So the Chinese, by the way, the Americans think, for example, oh, when China becomes number one, uh, they will take our place in the Middle East. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> China doesn't want to go to the Middle East. China is actually very happy. China will be very happy if the United States stay in the Middle East for another hundred years. <laughs> Nor are they interested in taking the United States' place in, uh, in Latin America. They have no such ambitions. At the end of the day, the Chinese view of the world is very different from the American view of the world. All they want is to be treated with respect. And if you treat them with respect, they will say, fine, you can carry on doing what you're doing. I'm not interested in changing you or your way uh, of life. And, 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 and I can tell you, when the, when the Americans say that China is a threat to American democracy, how? <laughs> China is not even sending money like they claim Russia has sent money to influence the polls in America. The, the, the Chinese are very realistic, very pragmatic. They don't believe that the Chinese system is good enough for anybody else. They believe the Chinese system is good for Chinese. And the rest of the world, you choose your own system. We will not interfere. So at the end of the day, if, the, if China doesn't want to step and take over many of America's global roles, what is America fighting against? Now, China, of course, has somewhat contentious re relationship with its neighbors, whether it is South Korea or Japan. Of course, then there is Taiwan. Um, and, and even in Southeast Asia, we've seen some issues around South China Sea. It's important to have, if not permanent allies, but at least, you know, friendly interaction with your neighbors. Uh, to that end, uh, recently, President Biden and Japanese Prime Minister Suga issued a joint statement, and I like the part where they said that they need to encourage peaceful resolution of cross-strait issues. Mm. Can Japan act as a calming influence in this relationship? Well, you know, if I was the leader of Japan, uh, I would be very, very careful in not waking up the Chinese nationalist dragon. 
Because unfortunately for Japan, the one foreign country that has actually damaged China more than any other country in the world is Japan, starting from the 1895 Sino-Japanese War, which, as you know, led to the secession of Taiwan to Japan. And so the separation of Taiwan, perhaps you can date back to that date. And, the China, and it is a fact, sad fact, the Japanese did terrible things in China in, in, in leading up to World War II. And as you know, United States and China cooperated against Japan in World War II. So it is actually not in Japan's interest to when your country of 130 million people sitting next to 1.4 billion people whom you've made angry quite recently, you want to tame the Chinese nationalist dragon. And therefore, I think the United States is not being a good friend of Japan in getting it to pronounce on Taiwan or Taiwan issue. Because the Japanese, when they establish diplomatic relations with China, acknowledge that there is one China and that China and Taiwan are one country. Now, I, I know that the Japanese tried very hard to deflect a statement on Taiwan by talking about Taiwanese straits, and they could sort of imply that it was actually the Taiwanese people who were creating problems across the Taiwanese straits. You know, they left that door open for that. And I think that the United States should think very hard before using Taiwan as a stick with which to beat China. Because the, 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 this, this, the, this is an, another example of having a lack of strategy. You must understand where the Chinese red lines are. There is a very hot Chinese red line on Taiwan. If Taiwan goes for independence, there will be a war. Let's be very clear about that. There, and and any, any Chinese leader who appears to be soft on Taiwan is finished. If there's one issue on which there's a consensus among 1.4 billion people, we will never allow Taiwan to become an independent country. So, so I, do you really want to start a war unintentionally with China? And this is where, by the way, this is where I, I'll give one, one compliment to the Biden administration. The, mis, the, the, the way that the Trump administration was crossing the red line on Taiwan was by sending official current, uh, current officials and envoys to Taiwan. Biden very cleverly reversed that. He sent a former senator, Christopher Dodd, and two retired officials, James Steinberg and Richard Armitage, to Taiwan. And that goes back to the previous understanding. So I thought that was a very clever move by the Biden administration. Very interesting. I had not noticed that. Thanks for pointing that out. Okay, speaking of red lines and sticks with which to beat China, technology seems to be the new big stick. Mm. Um, so we started with the trade war, but by the time the Trump administration was coming towards its end, it had become a full-fledged tech war. Mm. And the U.S. seems adamant uh, to uh, make sure that, and going back to the issue of primacy, that China doesn't attain primacy in the world of semiconductor production mm. and so on. Is that going to become a red line if the Chinese feel that their tech future is under existential threat because of U.S. sanctions and restrictions? Uh, I, I would say there's no red line there because it's perfectly legitimate uh, for the United States 
to try and maintain its technological superiority. That's a legitimate desire on the part of the United States. And similarly, uh, it's equally legitimate for China to try and maintain its technological strength also. So this is a legitimate area of competition where may the better person win. But again, you, may, uh, you can also ask yourself what's your strategy. So I'll give you an example. When the Trump administration cut off the supply of semiconductor chips to China, it hurt China in the short run, but actually it gave China a gift in the long run because it made the Chinese realize, I will never, ever rely on the United States for semiconductor chips. I may be behind now, I will catch up. And ironically, the Trump administration damaged the interests of American companies because by taking away their biggest market, you cut down their revenues. By cutting down your revenues, you cut down the research and development budget, and therefore you, you damage their competitiveness in the long term. And by contrast, I believe, believe me, the Chinese have a lot of money. They will deploy a massive amount of resources to ensure that they're never again behind in semiconductor chips. Of course, the country that really has primacy in chip production these days seems to be Taiwan, mm. which has its own uh, sort of you know dramatic implications. If mm. indeed China feels that you know TSMC is one of those important companies in the geopolitical chess game, but uh, TSMC, by the way, respects American laws. Let's be very clear: uh, it cannot. Right. If TSMC breaks any American sanctions, is is toast. So TSMC is completely subject to American rules and regulations. <laughs> So you could then conceivably envisage a situation where, under American pressure, TSMC diverts away from China because it has big plants yes. in China and, mm. of course, restricts the mm. latest generation of chips being purchased by Chinese mm. companies. Yes, certainly that could happen. Yes, and so, so but then that that all this is part of the big question: what is a legitimate form of competition and what is not a legitimate form? Uh, of, 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 of competition. And, and frankly, if both US and China are competing to produce the best semiconductor chips, the whole world should cheer them on and say, thank you very much. I'm waiting for my next chip to come to my phone. <laughs> and I, I, don't, I don't care whether the United States or China has made it. If it's a better chip, I'm going to benefit. <laughs> yep. Okay. Um, from Taiwan, maybe a little bit of a discussion on India. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, this whole notion of, you know, picking a side seems like India has picked a side. Uh, they have joined the quadrilateral security dialogue, the Quad. Now they're with Australia, Japan. India is now sending a fairly strong signal to China that it is on the U.S. side on mm. matters of military cooperation. And if side has to be picked, that's the side it's going to pick. Is that part of a useful strategy or India is making a mistake? Well, I think the the story of India is actually a very long and complicated one. But I don't think that India has in any way become a formal ally of the United States of America. And I believe the Indians are smart and sophisticated enough to realize that the best position for India to have is to have strategic autonomy between the two powers. So it will work with the United States on areas where there's some convergence of interests, for example, in the Quad, 
and it will uh, work with China uh, in other areas where there's convergence of interest. As you know, India has joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. India is a member of the uh, China-Russia-India Club. Uh, and, you know, that's where the latest meeting took place within Chinese and Indian officials. Uh, India is a member of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. So the Indians have chips uh, with the United States and chips with uh, uh, China too. And clearly, the, whatever happened in June 2020 at the border was a disaster. There has been an explosion of anti-China sentiment in India. I personally experienced it. When I try to appear on Indian TV shows and sound reasonable, I get beaten up. <laughs> so uh, I, I think clearly there has been a setback in China-India relations. There's been some improvement in U.S.-India relations. But I don't think India is going to become an ally of the United States. And what's interesting about the latest Quad meeting is that, frankly, everyone sees Quad as a, a, a defense organization but ironically, the only thing that Quad could agree on was vaccine diplomacy, <laughs> which I think actually was very smart, which just was India's way of saying, actually, this is not a defense alliance. And of course, India benefited from that because the Quad is going to uh, invest in exporting Indian vaccines to the world, and that's good for the world, good for India, and good for everybody else. From Chinese perspective, the Quad is a provocative measure? Well, it is certainly a, a, a provocative thing, but the, 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 the Chinese um, have a very, take a very long-term view. So I'll give you an example. Right now, Australia, as you know, is a member of the Quad, is a very strong ally of the United States, and as you know, uh, Australia is having a very rough time. It's going to have the hardest time dealing with the U.S.-China geopolitical contest because in political and defense terms, it's 100% allied with the United States of America. But its economy <laughs> is tied to China, much, much more so than to the United States of America. So Australia is going to have to make very, very difficult choices. And over time, I suspect that the Chinese economic pressure on Australia could become significant enough that Australia might find, you might find Australia very subtly distancing itself from the Quad too. And as you know, previous Australian governments did not want to join the Quad precisely because they knew their economy was tied to China. So watch Australia, watch what it does. Don't be surprised if it moves towards a more, what I call, midpoint position between US and China. Right, and it's an important point that Australia certainly has been characterized by a musical chair of revolving prime ministers mm -hmm. in the past couple of decades, which has added uh, quite a bit of volatility to its uh, foreign policy, no exactly. doubt. Um, uh, Professor, I've heard you talk in the past about China is not looking for friends, it is looking for partners. Mm -hmm. um, so who are China's best partners these days? I mean, I see them doing a lot of work with Iran, and they're, of course, as you pointed out earlier, you know, doing... Uh, stuff with uh, Russia, Latin America, resource-rich countries in Africa, maybe. Is that the direction China is going? Uh, well, I, I would say that um, your, the answer can be given to you with data. <laughs> if you want to know who China's partners are, look at the data on who are China's biggest trading partners today. And by the way, I'm going to surprise you. Everybody thinks that China's 
number one trading partner is either United States or the European Union? Wrong answer. China's number one trading partner is ASEAN. <laughs> then I think number two is EU or US, and number three right. is EU or US, and then go down the list. And as far as the Chinese are concerned, if we can trade with you, you benefit from the trade, I benefit from the trade, that's all I want. China doesn't expect any country to show what you call, quote-unquote, friendship, because they don't believe. And in that sense, they're much more realists, you know. There is no such thing as friendship between countries. At the end of the day, countries will respond to their national interests. So i give you an example. Uh, one of the most significant countries is uh, in Southeast Asia, is Indonesia. And an Indonesian minister says to me, privately of course, when the Americans come, they give us speeches on why China is all wrong. And they say, stand with us. And they bring nothing. When the Chinese come, <laughs> they say, you think you may be good if you have a new port here, a new bridge here, a new railway here. And guess what? At the height of COVID-19, U.S. exported zero vaccines. Indonesia imported 150 or 160 million doses. All from China. Most of them from China. So, you know, if you are an Indonesian, as the Indonesian minister was implying to me, and Indonesians, as you know, are good friends of the United States. When you are a developing country and somebody comes to you and says, I can build a new uh, railway for you, and as you know, the Jakarta-Bandung railway is being built by China, right? So, so that's, that's the real competition. And, the, you know, as Farid Zakaria said in his recent column in the Washington Post, huh, United States spent $1.7 trillion to build the F-35 jet, which will probably be never used in war. <laughs> it's too good. <laughs> And China spent $1.7 trillion on the Belt and Road Initiative. Which means, by the way, if you go to Greece, there's a Greek port that has benefited from the Belt and Road Initiative. And you can go all around the, the world. So that's the real competition. And even though the Indonesians may psychologically feel more comfortable dealing with Americans, at the end of the day, they have to ask themselves, how do we improve the conditions of the Indonesian people? And that's why they work with China, not because they love China, but because they find that they can improve the well-being of their people by working with China. And that's, that's what China offers. But Professor, staying with Southeast Asia, uh, countries like Vietnam, Philippines also have deeply uh, you know, important relationship on the trade matters with China, but they're both also rather sensitive about the South China Sea-related disputes. Mm. Where is China going with this? Well, I'm going to give away a big secret of diplomacy. There's no such thing as a benevolent great power. The idea that any great power is going to sacrifice your interest to take care of somebody else's interest never happens. That's true of the United States, it's true of China, it's true of Russia, it's true of France, it's true of the United Kingdom. So it is very uncomfortable living next to a great power. If you have any doubts, ask the neighbors of the United States, right? And so Southeast Asia 
has got to adjust to the fact that China's power has grown. It's a reality. You can't wish it away. And we have to adjust to it. But if we are good, if we, if we do it well, right? And so far, by the way, so far I must say ASEAN is doing it very well. China-ASEAN relations overall have been very good. And you mentioned Vietnam. If there's any country that knows China very well, it's Vietnam because they've had a relationship for 2,000 years. They were occupied by China for 1,000 years. And they say in Vietnam, to be a good leader of Vietnam, you must be able to stand up to China and you must be able to get along with China. And if you cannot do both, you cannot be a leader of Vietnam. And that's what every Southeast Asian country needs to do. It needs to be able to stand up to China and needs to be able to get along with China. Now, there are certain things that are happening within China as well as neighboring countries of China um, that uh, you know, push the boundaries of you know, us being disinterested observers. And I'm, I'm talking about this um, in the context of, uh, in your book, Has China Won, the concluding section you write that at the end of the day, we always have to make trade-offs, including moral ones. Uh, but at the same paragraph, you insist that the key question is not if the U.S. or China wins, rather if humanity wins. Mm. So isn't there a tension between humanity winning and making a trade-off on moral issues? Uh, not at all, not at all. And, and, and I'll give you a perfect example of a trade-off, right? For a country like uh, United States, it's got to ask, ourselves, ask itself the very simple question. Looking down the road 30 to 40 years, what is a bigger threat to the United States? Is, is there going to be an explosion of Chinese aircraft carriers coming to California to threaten the military invasion of the United States? Or is it going to be climate change that will ravage Florida and California and other parts? Which is the real threat? Chinese aircraft carriers or climate change? Answer is climate change. Okay, trade-off. Less attention to China, more attention to climate change, and I'll work with China on climate change. That's a trade-off. So that is, these are the practical decisions. And, and by the way, United States does it all the time. You notice huh, that the State Department came out with a very damaging report on Saudi Arabia, right? What did the United States do after that? They said, we'll maintain our relationship with Saudi Arabia, Right? So that these, are trade, these, these such trade-offs are done every day by every country. And let's not be moralistic and say, how can any country do, does do it? Because every country does. And one of the, the, one of the most amazing points in my diplomatic career was when there was a dispute between China and ASEAN about the future role of the Khmer Rouge at a, at a, at a UN conference in New York that I attended. China said Khmer Rouge must come back. ASEAN said Khmer Rouge cannot come back. United States walked into the room. United States, the champion of human rights, we said, oh, United States will support ASEAN against China. No. United States supported China against ASEAN. So isn't that shocking? So I have seen with my own eyes great powers making trade-offs. It's not new. It's been around for 2,000 years. And so it's wiser for the United States to look at the big strategic picture 
and decide what's important. And at the end of the day, the common global challenges like climate change, like COVID-19 are far more important. And therefore, to go back to my very first point, press the pause button on the US-China contest. Okay, so final point then on that issue of press the pause button. Will they? Uh, I think right now the Biden administration is still finding its feet, still struggling. But I suspect that there is now a growing number of voices saying, please stop. And I can tell you, a leading American journal has asked me, Kishore, to write an article saying, please, Kishore, write an article pointing out that all our policies towards China are wrong-headed, counterproductive, harmful to us. You know, So the fact that an American journal wants me to write such an article is, I think, an indication that many Americans feel very troubled that uh, Biden is just going on automatically with Trump's policies when, frankly, these policies have not hurt China, helped America, or helped America win friends. Well, we, we, we hope that Thucydides' trap is not uh, manifesting in our, our lifetime. Uh, Professor Kishore Mahubani, thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. It's great to have you. Uh, thanks to our listeners, too. Kopi Time was produced by Martin Taki. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional assistance. All 52 episodes of Kopi Time are available now on YouTube, as well as on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Have a great day.